This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we welcome Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Nathaniel Kahn and renowned astrophysicist Matt Mountain for a look at the -the state-of-the-art Webb Telescope, which will succeed the Hubble Telescope in 2018. Kahn and Mountain, both of whom have been deeply involved in the project, join NYPL's Paul Holdengraber to discuss how this new telescope will enable us to look deeper into the universe than ever before. Real pleasure to have you to have you both here, and Nathaniel, I've known for two decades and uh, nearly two decades, and um, I, I'm just extremely extremely pleased that you're here, and Matt, extremely pleased that you're here, and um, I was very pleased also to take you to the rare book co- collection, and for you to see some of the items we have here at the library, and I was wondering. Which one of those items spoke to you? Mm. It was incredible to see. Um, Well, first of all, Simon, thank you for that marvelous introduction. I haven't been called Nat since I worked on a construction crew, (laughs) and it was years ago, but I like the name in in your way of saying it, so so I'm Nat tonight. That's good. I like that. (laughs) Um, No, what a marvelous introduction. Thank you. And uh, um, the small world we operate in. Yes, exactly. We'll come back to that idea. We will. <laughs> we will. Um, no, we just saw behind, behind the scenes a little bit in the library recently, just this evening, um, some of the rare books that you have, and it's the most marvelous collection of rare books, one of them in the world. But to see these books, which we represent in the film a little bit, um, but to see a copy, actually, of Copernicus, which I'd never seen before. And I've never seen either, actually. You've never seen it either? Not in original form, I've seen pictures. And is it, there's a difference, you feel? Yeah, I mean, it's, this, is, this is the book that was so revolutionary. He had to publish it after he died. And apologies for my voice. I woke up this morning with no voice. So, <laughs> so Nathaniel's going to do most of the talking, no, no. which he usually does anyway. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> I'm Nat. Yeah, Nat. <laughs> no, but, yeah. but you hadn't seen that before. I had not seen it before. It was incredible. And then... You know, I think even just seeing the sunspots, which again, you have to realize, if you try to do that, you, you know, just to understand that even the sun wasn't perfect, it was flawed with these spots, which we now know are magnetic activity and pretty crucial to our own survival. And I think, I, you know, I, I thought I was coming to a public library not to see such amazing mm. books as those. What an incredible collection. I feel very honored and privileged to see them. Well, well the idea is to anchor the experience right. of you, of you us talking it, here, to see yes. that we, we have stuff. Yeah. We have... You do have stuff. We really do you have, have great stuff. stuff. 52 million items. Yeah. And you should see some of them. And, some, and I, I, I felt that I should bring this up particularly because of the clip we just yes. saw. One, one of the things we really, really wanted to represent in the film, and um, I should say that, that I'm very grateful to, um, and, and actually two of our colleagues from Discovery, who we were going to meet that night to fill the, 
to, to finish the story, uh, both John Hoffman and Ali Moss are here tonight, who were the ones who commissioned us to make this right. film. We're very, very grateful if you're you. out there somewhere. But um, one of the things that we talked about very early on with them was the desire to really represent this remarkable moment. We take it for granted that the Earth is moving around the sun, which it is, in case anybody doesn't believe it, it really, really is. But it does not feel like that. Even today, it doesn't feel like we're in motion. And nothing looks, you know, if you look out at night, it appears the stars are going around us. It, we still say it's sunrise or moonrise or sunset or moonset. It's because that's the way it feels. It feels like we're in the center of everything. But it and also, you, you, you said to me yesterday that mm. when we talk to each other, we're not quite present at that moment. Uh, that, that's another thing. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get there, okay, though. Okay, that's, okay. The, that's the, the time can... problem. But, but the, these it things must are... must be your problem. No, it must be, must be. Okay. But the, these things are, in a way, they're commonplace. Yet, we take them for granted in a way that we shouldn't. And we wanted very much in this film to take us back in time to put in context this incredible telescope that's being built now, but to give you a sense that only 400 years ago, we did not know, we had no proof, we might have thought that the Earth maybe was moving, it would be a better explanation, but we had no proof. It's, right? it's actually more important than that. It's the fact that Copernicus had this idea and he wrote it down, but nobody knew whether it was right. And then with a telescope, a handheld device about this size, you lift it to the sky and you realize, my God, he's right. There's no turning back from that moment. You can't undo that discovery. Now anybody can take a telescope and see the same things. And that's what telescopes has done. It makes irreversible changes in a worldview. And that is what's so You can't walk back from the discoveries we're making because everybody can now participate and see. So that is, a, that is, that, that, that is biting in the apple. That's the biting of the apple. Right. Once you've bitten the apple, you can't unbite it. <laughs> it changed our universe forever. Yeah, that's, that's what you... Sure. Yeah, and we're no yeah. longer the center. Well, uh, I think in a lot of ways, I think it gets we're... Worse. You know, it gets worse. It gets worse, and, and you'll show us how it gets worse. <laughs> but, but for a moment, think, you know, think, think, think about that. That, that um, I mean, I think we live in a world today where people are, you know, perhaps even some of these, these big geopolitical forces that are happening. There are groups of people that are very, very unhappy about us not being in the center of everything. Um, and I think that we are still living in the Copernican revolution. We're still struggling with the idea that we're not at the center of the universe. It's very, very difficult for us to get with that. And, and it gets worse. And it gets worse. And you, you, Matt can show us how it gets Matt, worse. Matt will show us, but before I, I yeah, put absolutely. Matt in control, I, I see him touching this little object which will change everything in our conversation. Mm. Um, that time problem. The time problem. Yeah, that, we, that you spoke about yesterday. I want, I want to, when I'm speaking... Sure. Oh, well, I mean, th this is also things that... that you all probably know, but it's, maybe it's worth to frame this whole conversation thinking about that we should take nothing for granted, right? We should do the observation. We should, we should, we should not, um, we, should, we should really stop to think what's actually happening when I'm looking at you and you're looking at me. We're about three feet apart. I'm not seeing you the way you actually are. I'm seeing you... That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm seeing you when you're three nanoseconds younger that's good. That's good, too. It adds <laughs> up over time. 
And if you go really fast, it gets, you get, things really change. But just the idea that, that you all sitting there, you're seeing various things, you look at each other, it seems like we're all in the same, the same room, and in fact we are, but we're not really seeing each other at the same time. If you look at the moon, it's about two seconds, it, the way it was two seconds in the past. When the sun rises, it's the way it was eight minutes ago if the sun disappeared we wouldn't know for eight minutes these are these are not these are very very important things you start to look at stars you're talking about hundreds of years thousands of years you look at the andromeda nebula which is the farthest thing we can see with our naked eye you can see it on a dark night simon i know you've seen it that's two over it's almost three million light years away so we're seeing that thing the way it was three million years ago Think about that for a moment. It's, it, and it's amazing when you say that, because when you say think about that, mm. it is, I mean, part of what is so extraordinary about telescope is yeah. it puts you in that situation of thinking about that, and it is huge. Well, think I think that's what that. we really wanted to do with the film, was really just, and this is what was so, Make such a wonderful opportunity, just to, just to bring it all together, just to put it in a room, it, in a place. And a film is kind of a room, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's, you bring in the things you really love and you rearrange them in various ways and you throw certain of them out and you bring other ones in and eventually you have a room that feels about right. You wish it could be maybe a little longer, a little bigger, but then they tell you it has to be smaller and, you know, you work on it. And eventually you say, okay, well, this is, this is what we've got. And then you experience it and it unfolds through time as you move through a room or move through a space and a film is sort of like that. So we wanted to make a room that would contain these wonderful ideas. Wonderful so, ideas, lots, lots of information, incredible yeah, amount of amount facts. amount of information, it's, it's true, a lot of facts. A lot of, and I, I understand that you, 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 you like facts. Well, I, like, I, I, do I, I like, like facts? facts. You do, you I kept do asking like me facts. I, I never like, remember them. It's true. Yeah, maybe I do no, like no, facts. He told me on pieces of paper and said, remember, it's <laughs> just a <pretend."> um, <laughs> What was your role, Matt, in developing the James Webb Telescope? Uh, um, many, many months ago, when we were building telescopes on the ground, NASA asked for some advisors about what we should do in space, and I was part of that originally. And then they asked me to be something called the telescope scientist. Uh, did anybody know about the Hubble? When the Hubble went up, it didn't work. <laughs> And so they decided to appoint somebody called a telescope scientist to make sure the James Webb will work. That's my job. So if it doesn't work, I'm the one sitting in front of Congress explaining why it's not working. <laughs> but so, and a lot of things can go wrong. An awful lot of things. Not many of them I have any control over either. So, you know, it's an interesting task. But it's just, it was a great privilege to be asked to be part of this. Uh, and I've been with the project now since uh, 2002. It's been great fun. And the change between Hubble and Webb? Yeah. yeah. Well, we talk about that a lot in the yeah, film. Yeah. And the film is a lot about the James Webb Space Telescope. Just times to... more sensitive than the Hubble. Yeah. Hundreds, it'll see 100 times deeper. What, and what would we see that we have not seen? There's a whole period of the gout of the universe that we have no idea where it is. It's called the Dark Ages. We're not very imaginative in astronomy. You know, we use dark when we don't know. And so there's this period that we know there was the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, and this beautiful uniform, la, the whole universe lit up, but there was only hydrogen and helium around. 
and then something happened, and all these beautiful galaxies formed. And then that period of something happened is called the Dark Ages, because even with the Hubble, we can't see into it. So we'll see the very first galaxies that are ever formed. And then we realized we could see the very first stars as they formed in clouds. We may even see planets that have liquid water. And these were all things we only imagined that we could do as we started putting the web together. When we started building the web, we didn't even know planets existed anywhere else except in our solar system. Today, we know there are thousands of planets out there. In fact, every star has a planet. So it's millions nearly, no? Uh, well, in our own universe, in our own galaxy, there's a hundred billion stars. And at least every one of them has a planet. So if you look up the night sky. I know, I, I know. This you know. is why you know we have to start thinking about that, and 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 we'll, and we'll come oh, no, to it. And we'll come bigger. to it. Of course, we'll come to it. But yeah. mamma mia! <laughs> but you have to understand. Ten years ago, we couldn't say that. Ten years ago, we couldn't say that there was even there a planet. Were, right. So I mean, we all remember growing up. These are some of these these things we all grew up with. That there were nine planets, right? Um, Eight. And now they're eight because Pluto got demoted by us. Which is very sad by you, and yeah. people still very no, upset about that. Did you? Did we, me you did? He didn't demote Hubble. it. No, I was running the Hubble when it got demoted. I see. And there are those who don't like that demotion. But but just the idea that when we all grew up, we knew of nine planets, one of them being the Earth, and eight, and eight, oh, eight, right? No, eight. You like facts too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like truth. Yeah. <laughs> but now all that's changed, and we. We'll come to that sort yeah. of later. We get to it, but this is in a, very much in our time. This is the last ten years, right? right? Yeah. So a lot of things can go wrong, and one of the moments in the film that I adore is I can't remember which which one of those scientists <laughs> says that what worries him the most mm. is that a problem could have been fixed on yes. Earth. Yes. And if it could have been fixed, and it's up in space. It's really tragic. For well, him. It, it is. No, go, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. I mean, no, but no, this no. Is and, and so the, the, the question, which nearly could form a whole series at the library, which is mm -hmm. wh what keeps you up at night? What keeps you up? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, because you, these scientists uh, are kept up at night by, by problems and passions, and right. one of them being, I could have launched this telescope sure. in a way that could have worked had I done Thought so of something. But I mean, part of, part of thinking about this, and, and Simon, you're, you're working on a book that involves these things. Are, you, are we allowed to, to say that, to the, the thing you're working on? Yes, but I mean, this is about you. No, 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 but, uh, but it's important because this idea of precision and the idea of, of things being precise. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope, of course, is an enormously precise instrument, but it was flawed. A mistake was made. Precisely made. Right, precisely made. But, but the precision was, was uh, the error is less, much less than the, than the size of a human hair at the edge of the mirror, and the thing didn't work at all. I mean, we've the seen images the images. came in. Okay, right. But the Hubble is only 300 miles over our head, so just to give you a sense of this new telescope that's being built, because we don't talk about it much, we don't have time to show you those clips, the James Webb Space Telescope, it will be, yes, a hundred times more powerful than Hubble, but there are other things about it that make it quite remarkable. One of, the, one of the most remarkable things of it is it's bigger than can fit in a rocket, so it has to fold up 
it's really an origami telescope. I love that. Yeah, it, 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 it folds up, which is quite remarkable. So talk about precision. This thing has to fold up perfectly, and then it has to unfold perfectly. And the difference with Webb, of course, is that uh, with, uh, between Hubble, Hubble is one mirror. It looks like basically a ground-based telescope, only in space. But Hubble has 18 mirrors, all of which have to work together, fold up, unfold, work together to create a single image. And also, unlike Hubble, Hubble is 250 miles over our head. The James Webb Space Telescope, because it is also an infrared telescope, it has to be very cold, has to be much further away from the Earth. It's going to be a million miles away. So it is way further than humans. The farthest mankind has ever been is the backside of the moon, Apollo 13, on their emergency return, 250,000 miles away. That's the furthest human beings have ever been in the history of our species. This is four times further than the moon out there. We can't fix it. So it, unlike the Hubble, the marvelous story of the astronauts riding with the white hats to fix it, we can't do that with Webb. So it has to be perfect. So this man who was worried at the middle of the night, the chief engineer, saying, you know, what, what am you I... You can feel it. You can feel it, yeah. He's anxious. Because you really, really can't. If you F it up, it's over. It doesn't, it's, it, you know, it doesn't work. And we have all paid for it. This is taxpayer dollars. Failure. Right? Failure is not yeah. an option. Right? But again, we're trying to push to very high performance. And you have to take risks to do that. And this is the risk we're undertaking to go so deep that we've never seen before, to use technologies that we've never used before is part of what we do. You know, when you built the first ships that went across the ocean, nobody really knew they would make it to America. But you went, and this is part of that spirit. We're making this telescope as perfect as we can. We're testing it, we're putting stuff into it that we think will compensate for things we didn't think about. But you don't make progress unless you go push to the limit. And that's the marvelous thing about this whole team and the way NASA does these things is that in this part of NASA space, space, we are really pushing the envelope of the possible. And that's what's so exciting. Because if we get it right, we'll see a universe we've never imagined. Pushing the envelope of the possible. Mm. Nathaniel, that's good, huh? I mean, you must have met some incredible characters. Well, sure, this guy here. Well, say something. No. Say, make, him, make him blush a bit. Say something about <laughs> no, that. No, you should go Okay, so this is, but this is filmmaking, and then yeah. we look at some images. Yeah, yeah, we, but, uh, but right uh, after this, we'll look sure. at some images. But sure. As a filmmaker, what one dreams of is, is great characters. I mean, whether you make feature films or you make documentary films, it makes no it difference. Doesn't matter. Films are films, and I, I almost I really resent the, the, the sort of the, the definitions between them. But luckily, I think the definitions are breaking down, which is good. A movie is just a movie. Is it entertaining? Does it take you from place to place? Does it tell a story on a screen? That's a movie. Um, but what makes a great movie is great characters. And one of the things that I think documentaries have given us over the past few years, which are so is so marvelous, is characters that do things that are unpredictable that surprise us with emotional things that suddenly come out of nowhere. Um, and in making this film, the reason I knew I was onto something great is one scientist after another who I met, they're marvelous, there's a marvelous innocence to you scientists in a way. The enthusiasm is the enthusiasm of, of a child, of a young person. They're, they're doing, this is not a job for them. This is their great passion. But they're also weird. They're, they're strange people. Um, 
in a good way. So in a good way. So in a good way. way. <laughs> but you know, so um, another person who's here tonight is my marvelous friend and collaborator Bob Richman, who is the cinematographer who we worked together on my architect and on this film. And Bob and I have a sort of a, a secret language together, and I stand very close to the camera when I'm interviewing somebody and he's filming. And he has one eye on the eyepiece, and the other eye is kind of roaming around in a somewhat disturbing way at times. And you never know quite what he's looking at. And, and, um, and uh, you know, occasionally the eye will go to me. And I've, known to, I've learned to read that eye. And the eye usually, well, it says many different things. Like, you idiot, why did you just ask that? Or why don't you just shut up? Or, you know, but, no, but many times it says also, we're on to something. This person's great. What they just did is beautiful. What they just did is human. What they just did, you could never predict. And that's something that, that um, you know, the language between a director and the cinematographer working together, it's this beautiful thing where you feel like you're a witness to humanity, just coming right at you. And this happened many, many times in, in, this, in this film. Um, and in surprising ways, when scientists weren't talking only about science, but talking about themselves and why they do things. And even just sometimes um, a marvelously unguarded moment of uh, a little laugh or, or a smile, or most wonderfully sometimes a silence when you would ask a question and someone would just greet you with the silence, which meant they didn't know. So that eye of Bob's would look at me and we'd know we had something wonderful. And that happened a great deal in this film. So I, I will say that, that this has been a joy um, to work on because I think we need to see scientists much, much more for the people that they are, not just for the facts, not just for the information. And there's a whole so, other film to do in a way oh, absolutely. About, about the scientists and their stories. That's right. That, that's much longer. And I think this is one of, the, one of the challenges, quite frankly, of working in television is that there, is, there are limitations and many times we would like to play things longer. And I speak for the people who, you know, who, who run the networks, too. They like the longer things, too, and we're sometimes stuck with cutting things short. So, uh, you know, there are, always, there are always challenges. Because, I mean, that but extraordinary woman, Sarah, is just amazing. She is indeed. And you feel there's a passion in her life that, yes. that comes forward, and there are yes. things that... No, the, there's, movie, there's, the movie doesn't say, but are right. there latent. There, there will be a longer, a longer, a longer oh, there version, will be? too. Yeah. Too, as well, um, but at any rate, not to you know a, a digression about filmmaking. And, and, and Matt, you told when I asked you who is Matt, um, who is Matt? Yeah. Who's Matt? Matt. Well, Matt's sort of and, the and Godfather. You, yes. Yeah, you said he's a Godfather, Godfather. Yeah. but you didn't end yeah. with Godfather because <laughs> right. that that would be the name of another movie. But you said right. he's a Godfather <laughs> of the telescope in some way. Yes. Yes, I sort of feel that. I think you did. I did. That's I'm what sorry. He said. <laughs> I did. Um, no, the Godfather of telescopes in the sense that. Many people come to you with questions, That's and just with being around a while. Yeah, and, and now your voice is sounding very Godfather even yeah. even more. <laughs> and and the two of you met. Ah, oh, well, that was a more interesting did, story. Right? Yeah. Well, we met because I used to make telescopes. Yeah, that was what it was called, right? That thing with a pipe. Right. <laughs> right. I made a telescope that Matt saw, and uh, as a very young boy, a friend of ours might be yeah. here, introduced me and said, "Look yeah. at this telescope." And it was made of pipes that had been welded. And I don't know, that was pretty cool. And I noticed it had a really cool use of the threads. And I thought, that's pretty smart. Who is this? He said, oh, it's Nathaniel's. I said, who's Nathaniel? 
Nathaniel Kahn. And I said, who's Nathaniel Kahn? And that's how we got to meet. Ultimately. So we met. And you, you also told me the optics were crap, but that's quite yeah. all right. <laughs> they were. Well, I don't remember. But I was yeah. pretty asked to try and line it up, which is not what I was you know, did. Yes. Images now. Images. We're going to do a sequence of images that you've prepared with Nathaniel. With Nathaniel. Um, well, I can tee it up a little bit, just I in the sense. Absolutely, no, no. Just, 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 just in the sense that, that we've sort of taken you to the point with the little clip that we showed you, of um, the sense that uh, Galileo, by seeing the moons of Jupiter, um, that's an image that changed the world. It, it really did. The idea that he's looking at this of Jupiter, and suddenly these little pinpricks of light that he thought were stars are moons. They're going around Jupiter. That means Earth is not at the center of everything. Here is an example right in front of us through this telescope that something else is the center of another system entirely. And it began this sort of long, slow slide, which Matt told me about, in a sense, putting us further and further and further away from the center of things. And, and smaller and yes, smaller. Yes, smaller and smaller. And smaller. De demoting us until we become... I mean, not just Pluto, yeah. but we feel smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. I, I put it more humble. Humbler I must humbler. say, uh, when I showed this movie to both of my sons, my, my youngest son, age 10, felt tiny. He felt that this seeing telescope made him feel so small. I think it can come back from yeah. that point. When, when does come mm. back, one first has to get there and you then. Do. And so we're going to take this journey mm -hmm. A quick through, journey. A like. quick journey through images you think that are particularly poignant and right. that will in some way tell us a story about this journey. Yeah. This Becoming story. smaller and smaller and less and less important. Less and less That's in one the of center the journeys, of things. Yeah. Less yeah. relevant to the universe. Less relevant. Right. So I'm, we're going to start with this picture, which is the Hubble Space Telescope. And if my voice backs up, you'll have to begin. It's the size of the school bus. It's traveling at 17,000 miles an hour above our heads. And it's the most precise telescope built at the time. And it's with this telescope, after about 400 years from Galileo, that we've learned so much about the universe. And as I will lead you, we've discovered how little we know. So telescope, what it does is take pictures like this. This is an actual image. It's not a computer animation. If you had eyes the size of the Hubble and you could keep them open in a vacuum for a week, this is what you would see. These are digital images. But this is a galaxy. This galaxy is 60 million light years away. So when the light left this galaxy, dinosaurs were roaming here. And the point about this is, in the before, way back, when they first built telescopes, they saw these fuzzy nebulae in the sky and didn't know what they were. And Hubble, Edwin Hubble, used a big telescope on the ground and discovered that this wasn't inside our galaxy. In fact, it was another galaxy. And so the whole universe is made up of galaxies, and we can take pictures of different galaxies. And here's a whole range of these pictures taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. And this last one just coming in now, and here's two galaxies colliding in the early part of the universe. 
But in this galaxy, each galaxy has roughly 100 billion stars in it. So you ask, how many galaxies are there? And so you can do things with these telescopes. You can just decide to go look. And so at one point, the second director of the space telescope, not me, decided to look at a point in the sky, a completely blank piece of sky, no bigger than a drinking straw. So you hold up and look at a single point in the sky. And he just pointed the Hubble at it for 10 days. People thought he was crazy, because he would see nothing. And this is what they saw. There are only three stars in this picture. Every point of light here is another galaxy. There are, in fact, 10,000 galaxies in this single point on the sky, no bigger than a drinking straw. And as you go across the whole sky, you realize there are 100 billion galaxies in our universe that we can see with Hubble. So we're only one of 100 billion galaxies already. So us, we are no longer the center of our solar system. Our sun isn't particularly special. It's one of 100 billion other suns in our galaxy. And our galaxy is only one in 100 billion other galaxies in the universe. <clears throat> That's already pretty bad from a perspective of importance. It gets worse. <laughs> Because as you stare into this picture, and you're looking back 12 billion years in cosmic history, as you go back and look at this image, some of the faintest galaxies here, their light started traveling 12 billion years ago. They're the orange and red dots you see. We realized that why these galaxies are arranged the way they do is because there's a whole superstructure underneath this of stuff called dark matter. It's matter that we see by the way it distorts light and the way it bends galaxies. And the light you see in this picture is only 20% of the actual matter in the universe. So the stuff, this is just the crests of the waves of the entire superstructure of the universe. Underneath this picture is a whole substructure of dark matter that forms these galaxies and everything else. And this is just showing you the crests of the waves. That's all we are. So the stuff we are made of isn't even very important from the universe's perspective. Because most of the matter is not the stuff we're made of. It's made of this stuff called dark matter, which we have no idea what it is. We haven't found it in accelerators yet. We haven't found it in experiments. We can see its effects, so we know it's there. And then it gets worse. Because as a group of young astronomers were trying to work out, looking at images like this, how much dark matter is there in the whole universe? Is the universe expanding and slowing down? Or is it expanding and coming down? And they studied some very faint galaxies in here to work out how big the universe was and how much matter there was. And they discovered to their horror the universe is actually accelerating away, it's being pushed apart by an unseen force called dark energy. And so, by looking at this universe, we discovered we are not very important from the matter perspective, we're only 20% of the matter. 
But the dominant energy in the universe is this dark energy. 74% of the universe is made of this stuff. And so we're left today looking at this picture with discoveries of the Hubble Space Telescope and other things, realizing that we may have to be a little more humble because here's the constituents of the universe. We're hidden in that 4%. The only part of the universe we understand is the 4%. We have no idea what dark matter is. We have no idea what dark energy is. And these two forces completely control the evolution, growth, and future of the universe. And we're just along for the ride. We are completely unimportant from the perspective of the universe. The universe is totally indifferent to our existence. Is that deep enough? Are we further enough down the rabbit hole? It's, it's mind-boggling. And, and this is from observation. This isn't right. theory. This is observational fact. It's as profound as Galileo lifting his telescope up and seeing the rotation of the moons around Jupiter. This is just what we see. And is it true that... Or not see, in this case. It, yeah. is, it, is it possible that we will never understand what dark energy actually is? Lots of people say things like that. And it's a bit like the ancients saying it's, the Earth is flat or the, the Earth is the center of the universe. Nothing, I will never say it's never going to be possible. We'll find out ultimately. But right now, we haven't, here we are in 2016. We have no idea what most of this diagram is. Mm. We are completely ignorant about the state of the universe. And we started in this euphoric state when we launched the Hubble that we'd understand everything. And a result of that journey, we've discovered we barely understand 4% of what we see. We are facing the abyss of the unknown because of telescopes like the Hubble. So, no. when your son says that a film like Telescope makes him feel small, he's only really feeling 4% of how small he should feel. <laughs> I knew that I could come to you for comfort. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. What a wonderful thing to be able to say. It's true. It's true. The observations at least tell us this is the picture we have. And we don't understand the picture. And you know, it was interesting that you used the word euphoria. Mm. There's a, a historian who I think is one of the very greatest living historian today. Um, studies mainly the Renaissance, but not only. And he says that when he starts a project, research, he starts his name is Carlo Ginzburg. He's a son of one of the great Italian writers named Natalia Ginzburg. And he says that when he starts a project, he starts with a euphoria of ignorance. That's where, that's a starting point. This is difficult for some people though, right? I think in a way this, this a little bit relates as a filmmaker to the euphoria of ignorance when you start out especially in a documentary project, because you really don't know what you're going to find. And there's something 
wonderfully exciting about that. And I suppose in that sense it is a little bit um, the way science is going these days. Because I think you were telling me that science used to, the, the, the dominant model was, you know, the sort of the, the model of you come up with a theory and, and you, you figure it out, and you, mathematically you figure it out, and you go, you go find it, you go right. prove it. Is it right. true, is it not? Exactly right. And, and now there sort of is a shift. It doesn't mean there wasn't experimental science, but, but, the, but the sort of dominant force certainly of physics and astronomy was let's come up with a theory and let's go test it. I mean, there was this famous book from one decade ago called The End of Science mm. that predicted that we'd find everything and we'd understand it all. You know, and scientists would have to move on. Well, like any theory, it doesn't appear to be correct. Not, not from that no, graph. Right. We have discovered, I mean, when Adam Rees, who's a Nobel laureate and works in our place, discovered this, somebody said to him, Adam, who ordered that? We don't want it. We don't understand it at all, and it's much bigger than we thought. And so, yes. It's going off the script. It's Completely. not, it's not, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's into the unknown. It's, it's we have into no the, idea yeah. what physics is driving us. Right. Which, is, which can be terribly scary or really exciting. And that's certainly, I mean... Uh, there, well, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a mixture, right? It, it, well, it is, sure. It, 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 you, you use the word humbling. Brings us back to the humus, the earth, right? right. The, the humility, the, the humidity of the earth. All of that makes us feel... That's interesting. So, I mean, would you say that one of the things that Hubble has taught us is humility? Yes. Is that something? I mean, really? it's not a quote yeah. from me, but the cosmologist Joseph Silk said, the greatest gift of modern physics today is a sense of profound humility when confronted with the great unknowns. And that's it. Mm. You know, we, are, we started this journey thinking we were the center of everything. And now... We appear to be less, in fact, unfortunately, it's actually even less than this 4% because half of that 4% is in the intergalactic medium. So, you know, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. But it's just a good point to be. It's, it's a very useful place for a species to be at because it sets the stage for the next part of the journey. Mm. You know, it, it, I, I, I told you that I, I would be quoting at least one line from Pascal, right. and I have to. So here it is, very short, it has that advantage. Pascal said, the eternal silence of these infinite spaces frighten me. Mm. I'm wondering how you react And he had that. no idea how infinite and how large the spaces really were. If not, he would have been even more terrified. Right. Such an interesting quote. I, I don't, I didn't know it, but it's suddenly resonated, it suddenly reminded me of a, of a Robert Frost poem that I love, and I don't know that I can remember the line exactly, but it's a poem called Desert Places. And uh, I mean, Frost would have been writing right around the time when some of these, certainly when, when people were understanding that there were many galaxies and that we were just one of many island universes. Let me see if I can remember it. He says, um, yeah, uh, they cannot scare me with their empty spaces between stars, on stars, where no human race is. I have it in me much nearer home to scare myself with my own desert places. Yeah, 
I don't know where that came from. Somewhere deep. Well, somewhere deep. But, <laughs> but, but it sort of, I don't know. It, the, the, these things do make you think about oneself and the spaces inside yourself that are unknowable and unknown. And how little we really know about the self in spite of all the marvelous psychoanalysts in this great city. We, we know so little. I don't know if we'll go down that road, but we could. <laughs> we know so little about ourselves and we have so little time to figure it out, you know. But, but and, and psychoanalysts may or may not help us. Well, right. right. We'll, we'll, leave that. We'll, we'll leave that as an unknown. We'll discuss that after dinner. After yeah. dinner, okay. After the, um, you know, mm. my other son, my older son, said that after seeing both telescope and my architect, he would mm. never look at space in the same way again. Well, that's, gosh, I'll, you know, that, but, but I think I have my epitaph. That's marvelous. That's great. No, that's, that's, that's a great compliment. That's marvelous. Partly because I think there's a, a recognition of what you were saying about the scientists. Uh, mm. Childlike. This, this yes. kind of appetite. But it's and interesting then, he said space. Space. Space, specifically. Architecture and then the firmament. Mm -hmm. And the firmament is in question now. And um, yeah, it is right. in question, right. and in that one might say also religion is in question, and I'm wondering, sure. you know, are most of your colleagues atheists? <laughs> I'm just thinking how to answer that question rather than should I answer that question. Um, it's actually not something that scientists really sit around and talk about. You know, it's a personal experience. Hold this a little closer, Matt, yeah. to you. It's a personal experience, I think. When you look at the universe the way we look at the universe, or are forced to look at the universe, you know, that's what we see, we observe. You know, religion is an experience that's not... The two worlds don't connect quite the way people like it to connect. Because science has spent an awful lot of time undoing ancient wisdoms just through observation and then repeating it, allowing other people to repeat it. And where that places you, I think, is a personal decision. Where that places you is a personal decision. Yeah. yeah. But you do have, I mean, there are colleagues who are, who are, who do consider themselves religious, probably. Some, yeah. Some. Um, no, I think it's a profound, it's a profound area. I mean, I think you're very comfortable with the idea that the universe is indifferent. And that... I am, yes. It's just, it is. Totally right. indifferent. I know you're not very comfortable. I just say, get you're over not it. Get over it. You're not comfortable. <laughs> get over it, you've said, yeah. No, no, no. <clears throat> but you, you, get over it is an interesting comment because... Yeah. You, yeah. Because no, he's very helpful to me. He's, he's, <laughs> he's helpful to you, but, yeah. but Nathaniel, let's talk. Sure. Let's hmm. talk and... and well, I, yeah, you're, I'm you're, not comfortable. You're not yeah. able to get over it. Not, not, not fully, no, because I don't... Because you don't want to give up something. No, I don't believe there's a divine being dispensing justice. I, you know, there's too many terrible things that happen in the world that make no sense whatsoever. To think that things happen for a reason or that kind of thing, I, I'm very disturbed by that idea. But I'm not fully able to let go of the sense that... Um, Oh, I don't know, I guess, of the specialness of human beings. <laughs> you know, it's, it's difficult for me, 4%, I know. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, but it's, it's right there in Sorry front of me. All that, I know. But, you know. <laughs> well, I'll take the 4%. Uh, I don't know, I, it's hard to... You give me 5%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. No, but, 
Um, I don't know. I suppose it's, it's, it's you know, as, as, as a child, I had certain experiences that I can't quite explain, but that I treasure. I treasure these experiences that make me feel... What's that got to do with the universe? Well, really nothing at all, exactly. except... Well, no, but, but I'm a creature of the universe, and, and, and I, I suppose it's the idea You're that... You're a conscious being in the universe. Yes, that's, that's fine. true. No, that, that's, that's fair. That's fair. It's true. Um, Get over it. Pu push a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. Get but over push, it. <laughs> push a little bit more. Well, I, I, I wish I had the language for it. I don't. It's a feeling. It's a feeling. One has a feeling. And, and to call it spirituality seems like too reductivist. But I have the feeling that, that there are things going on, even though there's 75, 70, you know, even if, though there's 96% stuff that is going on that I don't understand, that we can't understand. I understand that part. But I have the feeling that there are things that happen, forces that happen beyond just meeting people on Amtrak, which I can understand might be coincidental. That was remarkable. No, no, it's I... remarkable. Yes, but, but um, oh, I don't know. Just, just. Uh, and and feeling, know. we can move from feeling to the notion of meaning. Some things. Do yeah. Work. No, I think I think one wants to. I, I ascribe meaning to certain things that happen. Certain. And you certain, wouldn't, Matt. No. I, I, yeah. If you wish, if people wish to say this has meaning, I have no problem with that at all. What does meaning mean? Right. Two people meet, they talk, they have an experience that has value. What's wrong with that? Oh, nothing's wrong. I think it's marvelous. That's meaning. Yeah. No, it's it's. You're right. It's a good it's a good point. I mean, I studied philosophy in college, yeah. and then then I had a crisis because it wasn't able to explain anything. So it was, you know. But but I, I it was right it was, being an astrophysicist. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah. No, but, you but, know, there there is this wonderful line of Camus that I love, where he says, "One has to love life before loving its meaning. For when the mm. love of life has left us, no meaning can any longer console us." Well, that's good. That's, I think that's good. You didn't know you were coming good. up here to be psychoanalyzed. No, no, no. I'm, I'm perfectly, perfectly willing to be, to be in the, in the center here with a pin through me. Um, no, it's, it's a, it's, I love science, but I also but feel... But it's not enough. But, well, right. It doesn't feel like it is quite... It doesn't feel like it's everything. And, I, and, I, and, and it doesn't mean that, I mean, yes, I, I feel art is necessary too, but that's all part of being a human being. Right. But the idea that, that everything is explainable, that everything by nature is explainable. What's so, explainable? Right. No, no, but, okay, so, so maybe... So very little is explainable. So very Correct. little is explainable. Right. And we still, in spite of all, these, all of these discoveries, we still have absolutely no idea what a thought is. We just, I don't think there's a neuroscientist out there who could tell you we really understand what a thought is. I'm a neuroscientist. So I, no, no I don't idea. know. Anyway, <laughs> but um, what would your father have have made of of all of this and telescopes and the search for meaning a hundred times stronger with this James Webb telescope? Well, I think he would have said, "Get over it," as well. To would me, he? probably, <laughs> no doubt. Um, the telescope? No. Uh, well, he would. Okay, I'll tell you a little story. That it's funny you mentioned this. He was quite proud of this story, actually, um, because he was asked as a uh, he was asked to become a consultant for General Electric about what space stations would look like in the future, 
Yeah, I and read that. Yeah. yeah. He went to General yeah. Electric, and I don't think GE makes does this kind of stuff anymore. Maybe they do. I don't know. At any rate, he, he remembered very fondly going to this, this wonderful boardroom, and they had these beautiful renderings on the wall of what space stations would look like in the future. And they said, Mr. Khan, this is how space stations are going to look. We'd like your advice as an architect, how you know, we might make modifications. And he said, I, I told them, the space stations will not look like that. <laughs> and all of them drew their chairs closer and they said, well, what do you mean? What, what will they look like? And he said, well, they will not look like that. And they said, well, well, well why won't they look like that? To which he said, well, if they would look like that, we would have built them already. And it's actually quite marvelous. Absolutely. It's actually quite marvelous. And I think if you look at, if you look at the telescopes that we proposed years ago, it doesn't, they don't look like James Webb. No. Um, so it is, it is kind of wonderful. It makes you want to stay around for a while because all the, all the dreams that we have and the things we think we're going to find and the discoveries we think we're going to make, we'll find something totally different, right? I mean, isn't right. that part of... Yeah. I mean, and, and you, 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 doesn't that make yeah. you crazy? That doesn't frustrate you? It's okay? Isn't that the job? <laughs> to find out? To yeah. explore? I guess so. And also see. your job is to create things that you won't see finished yourself. Some, yeah, sometimes or certainly won't know what they will find when they first built the Hubble. You know, you do what you ever do. This is, you know, many, many, many years ago, back in the 80s you write down the things you're going to discover because the only way you get the money out of the federal government. And if you look now at the top 10 things that Hubble is famous for, maybe two of those things are in that list. And it'll be the same with the James Webb. We're putting this incredibly powerful thing up there. And we really don't know what we're going to find. We tell people we think we're going to find this. We may find an answer to dark energy. I have no idea. We may find the solution to dark matter. We may find life under the stars. But those weren't things we thought we could do when we first started the web. And what is so exciting also, and the parallel to your father's work, um, is it was made by incredible teams. And a lot of the work he did, sure. a lot of the work he did, one of the most famous buildings he did, he never, he never saw the end. It's all finished. Yeah. No, that's true. I think that it's true about architecture, it's true about science, it's we true about filmmaking. Comparison when he was filming yeah. in Hawaii, yeah. comparing what it is to create a film to building a telescope. You need these teams, these multi-teams, not exactly sure how it's all going to work out. That's true. That's and true. it's a big team of people, smart, difficult people you're trying to get to work together. Hmm. Nathaniel, do you want to? I wanted to show a small clip of, of my architect. Really? You want to go back in time? I do. Okay. I do. I want to. I want to show that that moment. I think it's a it's surprise a me. It's a beautiful moment, and um, and your father never saw the end of it. No, that's true. He never saw. You know, if you're talking about Bangladesh, yeah, is it the am. clip yeah. you'd like yeah, to yeah, show something yeah, from yeah. that? Uh, no, he never saw the building finished. It took 23 years to build, kind of like a great telescope, yeah. Yeah, and um, actually the building, the particular building, I've now discovered a series of letters which my mother has kept quietly in a, in a box, in, uh, sort of hidden away, and she's opened them recently. One of the letters actually is my father's first impression of going to Bangladesh and seeing the site for the building. 
And he writes her saying, I don't know what to do. There's nothing here. I have no ideas. This is a disaster. This is a terrible sight. Should I take this job? It, 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 you know, it could ruin me. And then the next day comes another letter. I have an idea. I have an idea. Um, I thought I could make a, uh, a building. There, there's, there's nothing on the site, so I have to make a context. I'm going to dig a hole and fill it with water and put a mound in the middle and build a building here and they'll have a mosque next to it. And they liked the idea. But still I'm anxious because if I sign this contract, it, it could ruin me. And then he says, this is, the, this is the trap for every artist, every filmmaker, and surely every writer, every, every scientist. But I can see the building rising before me like a dream. <coughs> can I say no to the dream? And then you have the building. Let's go. You never saw it finished, Bob. He didn't. No. You never saw this. Taking pictures? Yeah, we've been here now for about five days, and uh, it's... Five days? Yeah. It's a lot of pictures then. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> do you think you can really capture the quality of this building in terms of space, light, the volumes, and the layering of spaces, those ambiguities? Well, I don't know. <laughs> when you think about this film, I probably have, at the most, 10 minutes. Oh, God. This is, this is, don't tell me that. It's 10 minutes for this building? Probably. I think, I think, I, said, I, I think it's the whole thing is uh, very, very useless. Because you cannot treat this building like this. It was almost impossible, a building for a country like ours. In 30, 50 years back, it was nothing, only paddy fields. And since we invited him here, he felt that he has got a responsibility. He wanted to be a Moses here. He gave us democracy. He, he's not a political man, but in disguise, he has given us the institution for democracy from where we can rise. And that way, it is so relevant. He didn't care for how much money this country has or whether he will be able to ever, ever finish this building, but somehow he has been able to do it, build it here. And this is the largest project he has got in here, the poorest country in the world. It cost so him I his think, life. yeah, he paid. He paid his life for this, and that is why he's great, and we'll remember him. But he was also human. Now, his failure to satisfy the family life is an inevitable association of great people. But I think his son will understand this, and will have no sense of grudge or sense of being neglected, I think. He, he cared in a very different manner, but it takes a lot of time to understand that. In social aspect of his life, he was just like a child. He was not at all matured. He could not say no to anything. 
And that is why we got this building today. Uh, no other way to really understand him. But I think <coughs> he has given us this building. And <coughs> we feel all the time for him. That's why he has given love for us. He could not probably give the right kind of love for you, but for us, he has given the people the right kind of love. That is important. And <coughs> you have to understand that. He had enormous amount of love. He loved everybody. To love everybody, he sometimes did not see the very closest ones. And that is inevitable for men of his stature. On this journey, my father became real to me. A man, not a myth. Now that I know him a little better, I miss him more than ever. And I really wish things had been different. But he chose the life that he wanted. It's hard to let go. But after all these years, I think I found the right time and place to say goodbye. seen that in a while. It's um, Bob Richmond, who's here tonight, who filmed this with me, uh, reminded me that it was actually our very first shoot that we did together, which is, for those of you who've seen the film, begins with microfilm of looking for my father's obituary. Um, Bob and I were in this library. We filmed it here. So it was a marvelous circle comes back but also in extraordinary this, in this space yeah no it it, it yeah looking space. looking up and it looks like you're looking up at stars. stars no there there is there is certainly something there but there's also this this human endeavor you know i think of this telescope that i've been watching people build and it felt very much like watching people build a great building build a cathedral these telescopes really are our cathedrals aren't they i mean they're certainly what we now they're motivated by the same desire that motivated the great cathedrals to somehow understand or connect with our place in the universe, even if it's only 4% that we can understand. 
but it's motivated by this, it's driven by the same human, great human desire that does reach beyond one's own individual life. This is where we're building things yeah. up again. Yeah. Yes, uh, I think, right, it, right, you okay. know, from the place where you left sure. us, which was not particularly pleasant, to a place where this endeavor is worthwhile, and it's worthwhile this incredible effort of 25 years of building. It is. Oh, that's a that's a great. I hadn't thought of that, but this is this is sort of what's happened in astronomy, isn't Correct. it? Oh, so maybe I'll 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 may I just say this something about the film, and then I'll then you, you yeah. say this is quite wonderful. Actually, it comes back to what we were saying before, which is that honestly, when we were making this film, we did not have an end to, to my, my architect. architect. Didn't have an end. And I, I was really quite desperate. We'd been to all the various buildings and, you know, talked to wonderful people. But the question is, how will this film, how can I conclude it? And the man you see in this scene actually came up to me at a party. We were there at a party. And everybody in India, everybody in Bangladesh, everybody's so polite. And they all wanted me to have a wonderful time. And I was, but I was also kind of desperate because I thought I'm not getting something that has meat to it in terms of the, the building, yes, but not the people. And so this guy comes up to me at a party and starts in the same way he did in this scene. And he said, well, I think what you're doing is terrible. Ten minutes for this building? You know, and I said, okay, hang on to that. That's wonderful. Show up tomorrow at this building, and I want to talk to you. I don't need to talk to anybody else. And he delivered that, what you just saw, which just is... came out of him. But it was, it was a total surprise, and it only happened because we'd been willing to go to the very bottom, in a sense. And me admitting to myself and to my crew and to my, in my heart saying, I don't know where to go with this. I'm sort of, I've, I've come to a dead end. I have good stuff, but now what? And suddenly out of those ashes came that scene and came, you know, the guy... He delivered in, in a big way, but it was a surprise. I hadn't thought of that before, but that's sort yeah, of... Is that exactly what's happened right. in astronomy to some degree? I think, you know, we're on that turning point where... <coughs> excuse me. No, lift, lift it up just a little bit, then you can hear it much better. I hear you very well. Okay, good. good. That's yeah. good. That's perfect. Okay, so we're at this amazing turning point that will take us out of this abyss because we've learned something incredible in the last 10, 20 years. And do we want to go to that part of the story? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be great. Yeah, do. So here's a very famous picture. Christmas Eve, 1968. <sighs> Apollo 8, looking back at the Earth rise. The loneliest planet in the universe from our perspective. Four and a half billion years of solitude. This is the only living planet we know of. Our home. And you see it completely isolated in space. But remarkably, as we started looking out at the stars, over the last 10, 20 years, we began to notice things. Some of the stars wobbled. We go, why are they wobbling? And then we realized, oh, they must have planets going around them, and as they go around, they wobble. As we looked even deeper, telescopes like the Hubble, well, we've been thinking for centuries is Epicurus. There must be other worlds out there. Are we really so alone? 300 BC. Can everybody read? 
There are infinite worlds, both like and unlike this world of ours. We must believe that in all worlds there are living creatures and planets and other things to see in this world. Well, actually, we don't know the answer to this question. But for the first time in human history, we're on the verge of answering that question. And that's what modern astronomy has brought us to. Because the Hubble has seen things like this. This is a star, a very young star, just formed. And if you zoomed in, you would have seen a planet going around it. Now, is it big Jupiter? It's from a very young system. But 400 years after Galileo saw moons around Jupiter, we are beginning to see planets going around other stars in our galaxy. And it gets even more hopeful because when we looked out and surveyed our, universe, our Milky Way, we put up a telescope called Kepler. It observed a point in the sky and still observing today. And it has established that in our Milky Way of a hundred billion stars, there is at least a hundred billion planets going around those stars. Ten years ago, we didn't know that. So when you go out at night and you look up at the sky, you can do what no one has ever been able to do in human history. You can actually say, every star I see probably has a planet around it. It's not a supposition. It's not a philosophy. It's not a guess. It's an observation. And nobody has walked this earth has ever been able to say that before. And so you can go back to this picture, this picture of profound depression from your perspective, right? <laughs> In this picture are 10,000 galaxies. And when you ask how many pinpricks across the sky would it take to fill the sky, and you do the math, and you find out there are at least 100 billion galaxies out there. And in each one of those galaxies, there's 100 billion stars. And that tells us there's a lot of planets out there. In scientific terms, 10 to the 22. And so the question is... I like the at least. Yes, <laughs> I, I, at least. <laughs> that's my favorite part. Because there are probably multiple planets around each one of those stars, like there are in our solar system. And today we know this. And so the question becomes, are we alone in the universe? We need to go look and find out. And we're building the tools that will enable us. It may not be the James Webb. The James Webb will tell us maybe there's liquid water, which is the first step to life. But we may get very lucky. But we're on a journey for the first time in human history to find Earth 2.0, another home. Which we might need. Which we might need because of this picture. It's not all up. It's a bit of down before the up. <laughs> This is a picture of a star like our sun, taken with Hubble Space Telescope. Unfortunately, it's in four billion years' time. Our star, our sun, will run out of energy, hydrogen, and get really hot, 
as gravity takes over and blow off the outer layers and incinerate everything within four to five light years. There. Our solar system is right in the middle there in four billion years' time. So we do actually have to find another home if, as a species, we want to survive. And if we last that long, and given, last given the problems we have here. But that's them. the positive part of this. Why won't we last that long? We've done remarkably well. We've discovered the universe is incredibly complex. We've discovered that there's places to go. And we're, an in, we're a very ingenious species. Maybe we can find a way off. Now, it is interesting. Two years ago, we were looking at the remnants of one of these systems. It's called what's left behind. It's a thing called a white dwarf. And we saw a spike of silicon. <coughs> and you thought, what's that? This is supposed to be pure hydrogen. Everything's blown off. And what we realized, there was a remnant of an old planetary system that had been left behind after the star had blown up. And it was basically collapsing into the star. The question you ask is, I wonder how many civilizations were wiped out in that explosion because they decided not to move or couldn't move. But we have the opportunity as a species to look for another home. To travel. To travel and maybe explore again. And that's where we are today in modern astrophysics. And I think um, without, mm. without intermission here, we should look at that other uh, passage from telescope. Mm. If we can bring down the lights. Our sun is at about the same stage in its life as I am in my life, okay? Uh, it's about, you know, a third, a little bit more than a third of the way through its life. But when I'm 10% older, I'm going to be 40, okay? I'm going to be about the same, hopefully. Okay? But our sun, when our sun is 10% older, it's going to be 10% brighter. Our atmosphere is going to start drying out. When the sun is 30% older, it's going to be 40% brighter. That's enough to dry out the oceans on our planet. Eventually, the sun is going to expand and balloon. It's going to run out of hydrogen, and its outer layers are going to expand to a distance that encompasses the orbit of the Earth around the sun. So it's going to obliterate the inner solar system. So it's inevitable that we have to leave our home. But where do we go? now know there are at least a hundred billion other planetary systems in our galaxy. So an obvious question becomes, is there another home for the human race? Another Earth is undoubtedly out there. In our own Milky Way galaxy, we have hundreds of billions of stars. Our own universe has hundreds of billions of galaxies. To me, personally, it is definitely there. We believe every star in our Milky Way galaxy should have at least one planet. And we're hoping to find and identify a pool of transiting planets in the habitable zones of small stars. We call it the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, but just right for life. 
We're betting on the fact that nature delivers, that nature has created many rocky planets, and we're, we're planning on finding it. Airspeed is alive. 40 knots. It is amazing that in you know, just a little over 100 years we've gone from watching birds fly to having gone to the moon. We've launched 135 shuttles. We're doing the preliminary exploration to find out where are we going. When you're flying, it seems almost like you can see over the horizon. Makes me think about what other worlds are out there that are like this, that have water and land. James Webb Space Telescope will go where no Hubble has gone before. But the next step is to go where people have never gone before, to send women and men uh, off to Mars. And I, I do believe that, you know, a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, we're going to be looking to go to some nearby star that has a, an Earth 2.0 around it. These are real worlds that are out there right now. These are planets orbiting stars with moons and water and weather and clouds and sunsets and moonrises. All of the things that we see on Earth that we love almost certainly exist elsewhere in the universe. If we had a, a starship today that would take decades or even centuries to get to Earth 2.0, I'd volunteer to go, knowing that it's great-grandkids that will make it. Because of telescopes, it's a special point in human history. We can see the whole landscape, a cosmic landscape, laid out. So from the very beginning in time, from the present and into our future, out into the stars. Looking at the night sky is different for me now, changed by knowing that virtually every star has at least one planet around it. It's a shift of perspective, as big as Galileo finding evidence that the Earth wasn't at the center of the universe. Maybe knowing that other worlds exist out there can unify us, inspire us to work together. We may not be the ones who will venture to the stars, but with the telescopes we are building and that we will build, we can be the ones who begin that great journey. That's the end of the film. It's always hard to show the end of a film, but I think it does, uh, even watching it now and, and being with you here tonight, it does make me think that I think it's true what we sort of got to at the end of this is that we do have this incredible opportunity to be unified by this realization that we're just one planet 
of many planets that are out there, and we do have to work together if we're going to persist long-term as a species. And I, I don't know, I guess I was filled with hope meeting the scientists in this project and knowing some of the telescopes that also you're planning for the future and the things that we can do. It's, beyond, it's, beyond the, what? Yeah, beyond James, where? Beyond that. The question is, do we have the will? It really, it, the, wonder, the wonderful thing is the question becomes very clear. Do we as a people in this country, in the world, as a culture, as a civilization, as a, as a planetary society, do we have the will to survive? And we have the means. Maybe not fully, but we're getting there. We have the map. And we have the map. We're making the map to where we might someday go. Geez, I, I, I don't know. I, I was filled with hope that somehow this might unify us. It might be the thing even that we need now with all of the struggles and all the divisions we have in the world, that this is something we all face together. And you're talking about so, struggles on a societal level, political level. Sure. No, and I think some of the struggles that are happening, even some of the, some of the t t terrible sort of groups that wish to destroy other groups, that part of it is, you know, we just can't get with this feeling that we're not at the center of everything. You know, there's, there's, as you once said, you know, there's another village, and oh, gee, there really is, there, and there are other people, and there's another continent, and all this, and that kind of goes on until you get to the end of the earth, but then you say, wow, but there's this big universe out there, and we can go elsewhere, and we have to go elsewhere. I don't know, I have the feeling we've only had 400 years to have that begin to penetrate our consciousness. It, that's not very long. If we can just hang on long enough, I think maybe we can get behind this, you know? Um, as we close, you know that for the last seven or eight years I've asked my guests to give me a biography of themselves in seven words. Seven words that will or won't <clears throat> define them, a haiku of sorts, or as I often say, if you're very modern, a tweet. And your, your seven words, Nathaniel, were hoping for a revelation in act two. I wonder how you understand that. It sounded a bit like a suicide note to me, but you know. <laughs> so I figure, where are, you, where are you heading with this film, Nathaniel? You know? But I think that's not what you meant. But, you know. well, well, what did I'm you... interested, well, no, that's a, that's mm. a good. Um, you're interested in, in that reading. Well, no, no, I don't think it, no, it isn't what I meant, but, but I, I do That's understand how you might get you know. that out of it. Um, no, I think, I think, I mean, I've come to a point in my life, in the middle of my life, and I think I'd like the second part of my life to be different from the first part. I don't want it to just be like the first part, only less. That seems bad. <laughs> and, and I do think we all struggle with the idea that, that you know, what, what, do you, what, what happens in Act Two? And so, when I say hoping for revelation, I think it's really, it's, it, most of all, it's hoping to be able to do m more good work and spend less time fundraising. <laughs> Doing more work. <laughs> I'd like to do more work. I think that's, maybe the revelation is, is, is nothing, nothing short of just being more efficient, something like that. But, but also revelation in the context of what we've been discussing tonight sure. is very important. Yes, I, I right. you know, I, it, it sort of, it feels it like we're coming me. into an, ex an exciting age right now. I hope that, that I have enough time to see it. left to see it. Because I be really would like it, to yeah. see it and to be part of it. And you have the I, appetite for Yes, it. I have the appetite for it. I want to see it. I want to be around long enough to see the things that you're building and the things we might find and the, the discoveries that might happen. And 
hey, the films that might get made. I don't know. I feel like we're also in a point in filmmaking where, where narrative forms are breaking down and certain things aren't working Mention anymore. That. Well, the, the three-act structure, for one, doesn't really work anymore. And I th I'm so excited to be part of the documentary community because I feel that documentaries are pushing the way we perceive stories and what we expect from a story, that the same old, same old isn't enough anymore. So, yeah, so anyway, hoping for revelation in act two. Do you remember your seven words? Not exactly. Okay, your seven words are our universe's indifference leaves me curiously hopeful. Yeah, so. How, how, how do you understand? Oh, that? I know. I, I, want, I want to hear them. I want to. I understand That's it. That's not fair. I get it. No, no, no. <laughs> I get it. And it and makes sense. Suicide. And, and, no, no. And knowing you, it makes sense. The one word that really fascinates me there is curiously. I want to know why curiously, and I, I know you're very precise. What, what is it that's curious about that to you? I don't know whether we're going to solve all the problems, but I'm hopeful that we will. I've seen such incredible abilities of the human race as a, you know, to do things, small things like building telescopes or solving big problems or watching the decline of violence over the centuries. You know, it's that thing, that Churchill thing we said about Americans, you know, having tried everything, they finally get to the right answer. As a species, we seem to do the same thing. And I'm really hopeful that we know the ticking of the astrophysics clock is there. There's nothing we can do about it. The universe doesn't care one jot whether we care or not. Our sun will annihilate itself. There's nothing we can do to stop that. Galaxies will collide. The universe will move on. But us sitting on this little planet, we've done remarkable things. You know, we, we worry about the state of the world. That wonderful book by Pinker, The Devil. We see violence decreasing. We solve incredible problems. We're just an ingenious species, and I'm hopeful that the things that we see, we will be around to move before the sun wipes us out, and we won't be part of that remnant that we found with Hubble. Or like the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs hung around for 120 years, million years, and nothing happened, and an asteroid came and wiped them all out. I don't think that's going to be us. On that note, <laughs> on that note, wonderful. Simon, thank you so much for coming and doing this marvelous introduction. I think I asked you to do it a couple of days ago when you were in a different, on a different continent. Thank you so much. It was very, very meaningful, also given the serendipity of, of this occasion. Thank you to the Discovery Channel for, for their support. And um, Nathaniel and Matt, thank you so very, very much. It's been quite a journey. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Uh, thank you, Paul. Now, we, we don't... We, we often don't have a Q&A, partly because I think people want to leave and they have dinner plans and other plans and feel at this point, you know, what's the point. But um, <laughs> both Matt and Nathaniel we're looking forward to 
three very good questions. So we're going to put up the lights, put a mic up here, and if three courageous, intelligent, articulate people could come up and ask three very good questions, each very short and poignant, that would be marvelous. That's the first question. I hope I can meet your requirements for the question, but the question I have is, uh, whenever I hear the NASA people talking about we cannot repair the James Webb telescope, I thought that that was such an incredibly limiting statement. It's only four times farther than the moon. Why don't we just pack extra lunches in an Apollo spacecraft and go service it if we need to? So NASA right now has no ability to even get to the moon. And the problem is we're in a space station. We're protected by the Earth's magnetic field. We don't know how to solve the problem to take human beings beyond the moon without killing them on the way there. We don't even have that technology. We don't know how to build life support systems that won't break down on the way to the James Webb. Now we might be able to send robots and maybe tug the spacecraft back. But you know, we have made no preparations for that just because we don't have that infrastructure in place. On the other hand, you know, we're working very hard to make sure we don't screw up. The mirrors can all be adjusted. Uh, there's several motors and everything. But sometimes, you've just got to do things. Let's see what happens. Hi. Will the Webb telescope be able to see back further or before the cosmic microwave radiation background? No. So we can never see beyond that point using electromagnetic radiation because that is what's called the first scattering surface. When the Big Bang occurred, that is that imprint. What we don't know is how that imprint turned into the galaxies we see today. And so the web will see that part of the dark ages that we can no longer see. But we have no way at the moment to look beyond that. The only hint that there might be a way is this recent discovery of gravitational waves. That might be our tool to look beyond that. Thank you for your presentation. Um, the, uh, the Earth was, didn't have an oxygen atmosphere, and oxygen is definitely a sign of life. Would that be one of the characteristics you're looking for? Yes. So, life created our oxygen in the atmosphere, actually. But you can ask geologists, and they will tell you there's ways just to create oxygen. So oxygen on itself isn't enough. You'd have to find oxygen, methane, carbon dioxide. The whole idea is if you put these gases in a bottle and shook them, they wouldn't look like that. They'd react and everything. What you're looking at are gases that shouldn't coexist together without something creating methane, cows, or oxygen, plants. The fact that these gases are out of equilibrium, as we call it, that's the sign of life. Life changes the planet it's on in a way that chemistry can't or geology can't. And to think about this too, just think about the will that we need to do this, because I think right now NASA is about 0.4%, is it, of our, of our national, of our budget? Right. About 0.4% we spend on NASA. Um, and at the time of the Apollo, it was 4%. 4%. So there's a big difference there. 
And I think that part of what is very exciting is that telescopes like the web are really the gateways to much larger instruments which you are already which are already being thought about those are the ones that we really need to answer that question of are we alone in the universe and, yet, and we can do it so and yet they aren't part of the political discourse now um, hopefully they will be right i mean that's I, but reasons. i think that's partly up to all of us why, I, why we uh, like movies like this it gets right. it gets this discourse into the public domain we're not going to do things like this unless the public wants us to do it. So we need to want it as a species. We need to want to know the answer to that great question. Are we alone in the universe? And realize that the answer is yeah. just there now. For the first time in human history, it's just there. We've never been at this point in our entire history. It's exciting. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.